Hello and welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. My name is Toby Miller and my guest today is... Nikki Falkoff. Nikki, it's wonderful to make your acquaintance. Thanks so much for doing this. It, I assume that you're in South Africa and it's a pleasant sunny afternoon there. Is that right? I am. It's blazingly hot, having been uh, almost monsoon levels of rain for the past few days, which is unheard of in a Johannesburg summer. So, you know, we are kind of experiencing the very thin end of the wedge of incipient climate change in this city. The weather is noticeably changing every summer. And of course, in other parts of Africa, there is um, desertification and so on and intense aridity. But whilst that's certainly something we can talk about, if you wish, I guess my big question to start with, as usual, is to ask you what's on your mind these days, what's on your mind right now, what's dynamizing you, preoccupying Mm -hmm. you, whatever it might be. Well, I, as a scholar, I've done a lot of the work that that I've written, that I've published so far, has been around issues of whiteness, particularly South African whiteness. And without a doubt, that is because I'm a white South African. You know, I've spent my entire academic career grappling with my own complicated identity, my own complicated history, the completely unearned privilege that I have as a consequence of my upbringing during apartheid and post-apartheid. And I now find myself in the the very, very um, distressing and invidious position of being someone who is A, a white South African, and B, a a diaspora Jew. And being a diaspora Jew in 2023-2024 is a complicated thing to deal with. I come from a traditionally Jewish background, the majority of my family are almost, I suppose, unthinking Zionists. Um, I went to a Jewish school where Zionism was part of the air that we breathed. It was not until I was in my 20s that I really understood that Palestine was a real thing and that Palestinians actually did exist. So I now find myself in this really awful political moment where I, I agree with the claims that we are watching a genocide happening on social media in front of our eyes. And of course, as with, I think, most right-thinking people who are on the left, I am appalled and horrified and want to contribute in any way that I possibly can to adding political pressure. But at the same time, I'm having to negotiate and navigate the fact that this position of mine, which to me seems so obvious and sensible, has turned me into something of a monster to a lot of the people I know who are so deeply embedded in particularly hardcore types of Zionist ideologies that as far as they're concerned, people like me are supporting Hamas baby rapists. And then on top of all of this, I am currently pregnant very, very unexpectedly. So I'm also grappling with the emotional complications that I think happen happen to anyone when they find themselves about to bring a child into the difficult world that we live in at the moment and thinking about that in terms of what what does it mean to have kids and to raise your kids as Jews when as a consequence of a kind of an explosion of violent 20th century geopolitics being Jewish now means a being white and b being Zionist and I don't necessarily think that Zionism and Judaism are intertwined in any particular way but they have come to mean that and how do I retain some sense of my own history and my family's history and give this to my children without implicating them or implicating myself in what's going on in the Middle East right now, which is fundamentally an American colonial war. So I'm quite conflicted about a lot of things, but I'm also very, very grateful that I'm working in South Africa where I'm allowed to talk about these things in the classroom without fear of losing my job. I really appreciate your profound frankness in sharing with us both those or those three statuses, in a sense, (laughs) and uh, all the best with the pregnancy and congratulations if if they are in order. These things are complicated. They are. They are. We're just a little horrified. (laughs) Yes. Right, right, right. I think one of the things that's really been one of the great boons of feminism in the last 50 years in particular is the ambivalence about being a parent that is is now sayable, along with the pleasure and the love, right? Um, That's true. Absolutely. And one of the the things, I mean, this will be my second child. One of the things I was really 
um, wary about as an academic mother when I had my first child is that I didn't want to get drawn into that way of thinking that seems to happen to a lot of women in academia where you have a child and suddenly that's all you want to think about, talk about and write about and mothering becomes completely central to your identity as a scholar. And I've been trying to avoid that, but I have found myself in this moment dealing with the fact that my intellectual and ethical self is almost at war with my maternal and emotional self, which is genuinely terrified about the state of the world and the state of South Africa and the state of life in general. So these, these fears, these overwhelming, quite almost primal fears that I have are locking horns with the fact that I know that my anxiety is um, filtered through a lens of whiteness and a lens of intensive privilege and that the people who worry the most are generally like me, the people who actually need to worry the least. So, you know, I'm finding I'm finding intellectual mothering very um, stimulating, but also very, very ethically demanding. And in terms of South Africa and what is going on in Gaza, of course, your government has taken a lead in prosecuting the Israeli government over this issue. And I imagine that in terms of many people whom you love and care about Mm -hmm. deeply in South Africa, who are Zionist in their inclinations, that also leads to intense conflict and difficulty because suddenly uh, we have this extraordinary moral stance from a country that is itself deeply conflicted and torn but has emerged as, a, as some kind of ethical model following the horrors of colonialism and the apartheid state afterwards, right? Um, suddenly in a duel internationally with Israel, that's got to have implications not only at that geopolitical legal level, but at a primal level for you and love Absolutely. I mean, we. I think, you know, anyone who's been following this situation to any extent will be aware of the extremely effective weaponization of ongoing moral panics around anti-Semitism in support of the Zionist cause. And this is not to say that anti-Semitism is not an issue. Of course it's an issue. We know it's an issue. But, you know, in the wealthy and developed West, Jews are not very often being murdered for being Jewish in the same way that, you know, many Muslim people around the world are being murdered for being Muslim. This does not mean that anti-Semitism is a problem. But I think what it does do is it gives us a way to think about the fact that when anti-Semitism is raised, it's often, at least for wealthy communities, it's often raised for a particular ideological purpose. Now, what the South African government has done, and just by the way, it's incredibly rare it's vanishingly rare for me to feel proud of something that my government has done or that my country has done because we're a mess let's not kid (laughs) but they have as you say for the first time in quite a long time they failed with putin they've failed with other african leaders but they have taken some they have they have taken a moral stance which of course they don't do with their own people either um which is also that's another conversation but what this what this action has done, what the International Court of Justice case has done, is it's also provided the unelected, uh, extremely conservative, I think really quite racist communal organizations that claim to speak for Jews in South Africa with a huge amount of ammunition that they can use to claim that the state is fundamentally anti-Semitic and that Jews here are at risk, right? That we are all under threat and we need to panic and we need to worry. And there's also been a way in which Israel and South Africa have now been set against each other. So you encounter these these discourses where, you know, people are going on about how Israel looks after its elderly and South Africa leaves its elderly to starve. Which one of these two states do you think is the more morally upright? Um, and it's, uh, yeah, it's quite, it's disturbing and it's unsettling because, of course, that also plays into this very consistent, ongoing middle class white demonization of South Africa. And again, that's not to say that South Africa is not a mess. It is a mess. But there's something about the way in which white people talk about the mess of South Africa that is fundamentally about a racialized judgment in which what they are saying is 
they have taken over and it's their fault that everything is terrible. And now certain types of white South Africans who are Jewish get to go, they have taken over, everything is terrible, they are morally wrong and they hate us and we need to barricade ourselves even more fiercely within our little ghettos because we're under threat from the state, which we're not. One of the expressions you've used there, Prof, is moral panic. And um, moving a little bit, if we could, towards your scholarship, but this is not to end the conversation about South Africa, Israel, Gaza at all. This is a concept that you use quite a bit, uh, particularly in your most uh, recent book, which is the thing that, in a sense, has connected us uh, today. And uh, that's warrior state. And you talk there a lot about risk and moral panic. I wonder for those folks who may not be familiar with the concept, if you could explain a little bit about what moral panic signifies, the value of it, the utility of it as a concept, and perhaps any problems that you associate with it as a concept. This is something I get asked to do fairly often, and I find it ridiculously difficult. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, um, I'm piling on. I'm piling <laughs> on. Oh, good God. Prof, I'm sorry. It's a, valid, it's a valid question because it is a concept that I use a lot and one that I'm slightly uncomfortable with in various ways. So I, I had no idea that the concept of moral panic existed. Um, I, did a, I had a strange academic journey. I didn't really... I was never really embedded in a particular discipline. So, you know, I never got to read the sociological literature or the cultural studies literature. I just browsed and picked and chose things that I thought were interesting. And during my doctorate, when I was writing about the Satanism scare in apartheid South Africa, my one of my two supervisors, who is a brilliant and wonderful human being named Barry Curtis, looked at me and said, you're writing about moral panic. And I was like, gosh, what's that? And I went off and read yeah, Stanley Cohen's book about the mods and the rockers. And the top of my head exploded because I was like, oh, this is what we're talking about. Um, so I've been fighting with moral panic on and off ever since then. And, you know, when we when we talk about a moral panic, what we mean is an event or a series of events in which a particular narrative is blown completely out of proportion a narrative of threat, generally in the media and by various people who within the literature would be called moral entrepreneurs, people who have a certain degree of power and influence, who would suddenly start agreeing that whatever this thing is, this thing is a danger, not just to individual people, but to the moral fabric of society. So this is where the terminology comes from. This is not a threat like a tsunami. This is a moral threat where something about this thing, this event, this group of people, this technology, whatever it is that we're worrying about at that particular time, is a viable threat to the moral fabric of the societies that we hold dear. And the term panic connotes the kind of viral quality of these stories where they get spread around. Now, as the literature has developed, it's become a lot more complex, of course, and has, has begun to acknowledge the fact that these things are not always top down. It's not always moral entrepreneurs or the media who invoke a moral panic. They often come from the bottom up. There's, there's a huge, huge, huge wealth of literature on moral panic, um, much of which is why I've been a little bit wary of over identifying myself with the concept because so much is written about it. And so many people have explained what the problematics are, that it's oversimplifying, that it assumes a moral value judgment on the part of the analyst who's basically looking at whatever's going on and going, mm, this panic is overblown, excessive and silly, therefore it's a moral panic. So what that means is that you as a scholar are looking at something that's going on from your cushy, comfortable university job where it's very easy to be a nice lefty and going, aha, this is not real. Video games are not really a threat. Single mothers, not really a threat. Drug abuse, not really a threat. And you get to make a moral judgment on whether this thing is a problem or not. So there are numerous critiques of moral panic. One of the reasons that I keep using it is that I find the phrase really evocative. You know, I think that when you're talking to people and you say to them, this is a moral panic, there's something in the way that those words work together. There's something about the connotation of both morality and hysteria that I think is very important. I also think that, you know, the idea of a moral panic remains the most useful 
tool we have to explain certain types of phenomena. And of course, it needs to be much more elastic than it perhaps has been in the past. But we're living in an age of, of rampant paranoia, rampant conspiracy theory. We're living in an age of out-of-control narrative where social media has constructed a scenario where information spreads so quickly and is so very, very, very uncheckable. And we are also very quick to believe the absolute worst. I have not encountered a term or a set of ideas that is more useful than moral panic in explaining this. Because when we talk about conspiracy theories, which of course are very closely related, also a very interesting idea, conspiracy theories mean something different. Conspiracy theories contain within themselves a very particular ideology, whereas moral panics can be brought into service of any ideology, really. They can be a left panic, they can be a right panic, they can be a panic somewhere in the middle, whereas conspiracy theories are generally more specific. So I do think that the term continues to have utility, but I also caution people, I caution my students all the time on not becoming overly caught up with it. Um, the useful thing about moral panic is to give us an accessible language in which we can try and talk about contemporary cultural phenomena. What is not useful is, you know, spending our time going, is this a moral panic? What are the classifications of a moral panic? Where are the lists? Let's make a list, which I think is a tendency that scholars in the social sciences sometimes have. We think it's important for us to kind of be more scientific and come up with a clear list of rules and tendencies to describe social phenomena because that makes us seem more legitimate. And we're talking about stories, which means things change all the time. It's very difficult to provide um, that kind of clarity, and it's not always useful. Well, if I can ask you another potentially difficult question. <laughs> the title of the book, Warrior State, not warrior state, warrior state, just to be clear in terms of what people might be hearing. Mm. Could you explain what that means? What is a warrior state and why is South Africa one? Um, the honest answer to that question is that I have a very, very, very clever friend. Um, she's, a, she's also a cultural studies scholar. Her name is Mahita Ikani. She works at Stellenbosch University. And she, I was brainstorming titles for the book and she came up with <laughs> Um, she initially said warrior nation because I was asking, you know, what could I, how can I write a book about a country that is infused with panic and concern and worry all the time? So, you know, that's, that's the straightforward answer is that someone smart came up with it and it sounded good. But, you know, the, in terms of the motivation of what I was trying to get at by going with that, what I've been trying to suggest with this book and with all of the work that I do on anxiety is something about the way in which anxiety is not separate from daily life in South Africa. It's not something that just comes up when there's something particular to be anxious about. It's a free-floating state. I actually, in the introduction to the book, I think I quote... Kopono Rotele, who's a brilliant South African psychologist, who talks about anxiety as free-floating and objectless. And I think that really helps to define what these kind of persistent negative emotions mean in South Africa, that we are always all concerned about something. We are always all waiting for something bad to happen at any particular moment. And, you know, we know from the work of scholars like Sigmund Bauman, who has been a huge influence on me, whose work I use all the time. He writes about cultures of fear. We know that this is nothing new and this is not something that's unique to a place like South Africa. But what's been really important to me is to talk about how this very late capitalist neoliberal state of persistent fear, persistent anxiety, persistent negative emotion can manifest in a place like South Africa where you actually are at risk you know i mean yes there is a degree of risk to daily life in the global north but it's nothing like you have here i'm sitting in my i'm sitting in my office in my lovely house at the moment and i'm looking out the window and all i can see um in my neighbor's gardens are all their incredibly spiky palisade fencing and um their security apparatus you know there's we we live in a constant state of panic. And there's something about that. There's something about how that plays out for both the middle classes who over, who I think exaggerate our level of risk 
and everybody else whose level of risk is often ignored, at least in media and public discourse. There's something about that that I think is incredibly telling about what it means to be a subject or a citizen in the contemporary global self. And I, I don't think that's reflected in a lot of the literature on emotion, fear, affect, cultures of fear that's that, that, that appears in contemporary scholarship, because I don't think a lot of people in the North look at places like this and go, what does it feel like to be scared in there? Because they're too busy going, what does it feel like to be scared of there? Yeah. Wonderfully put. And one of the things I think that you share in common with a lot of scholars from the global South is that you left in order to complete your higher education. You were away quite a while. Mm -hmm. When you returned for good, as it were, what, what were some of the changes that you noticed? That's actually a really interesting question, given my particular positionality and the place that I live. So I, I mean, yes, I was, I lived in the UK for about 15 years, um, which is why I have this fake accent. Although my brother who's lived there for a lot longer still sounds like a South African, so make it that what you will. Um, when I, I left Johannesburg when I was 18 to go off to university because I thought Joburg was terrible. When I was growing up, it was this boring, depressing place because I, I was a child of late apartheid. I had no idea about the vibrant, thrilling, mixed up, diverse, mashy culture that makes this city what it is because I, did, I was a white kid in the suburbs. And then I went off to Cape Town to study. And of course, Cape Town's so beautiful. And then I went to the UK and had a great time. And I moved, when I moved back here for a postdoc, I was obviously quite resentful because, you know, I, hadn't managed to <laughs> hadn't managed to acquire a permanent post in Britain after finishing my PhD. No one had told me that you need to have a book and three years of adjunct teaching before you'll get a job interview in the UK. So I was waving my doctorate around going, why is no one hiring me? In absolute horror that it wasn't working. And then found a found a postdoc back in Joburg, moved back to Johannesburg, found a job and ended up staying permanently because I was completely astonished it was like a different city it was a place I didn't know at all my personal geography of Johannesburg changed radically because I moved to a different part of the city still in the suburbs the formerly white areas but a suburb that was wildly diverse full of artists and writers full of migrants from all over the continent I found myself hanging out in parts of the city that were largely inhabited by people from Francophone Africa, eating different kinds of food, hearing music I'd never heard before. Joburg was a city where you would leave the house at 5 p.m. and end up on the other side of town at 5 a.m. without really understanding what had happened to you. It was, it was a whirlwind. It was absolutely fascinating. I've never lived anywhere that was as fast-moving or as inherently changeable. And, of course, it's also... A very cannibalistic place. It without a doubt chews people up and spits them out. But there, there's something that I found really appealing, and I think that still works on me to some extent about Johannesburg's honesty when it comes to inequality. Whereas cities like Cape Town, which are much more beautiful, it's a lot easier to live in your middle class bubble. It's a lot easier to stay in places where everyone is more or less like you and to not have to really think about the costs and the consequences of the very nice life you have. That doesn't happen in Joburg. It's in your face all the time, which makes it a very difficult and challenging place to live. But there's something about it that really appeals to me, especially after so many years of living in Britain, where you don't mention race, because if you do, you're being racist. So, you know, for me, coming back to South Africa was something of a revelation and it made me realize how very, very shaped my entire personality and my way of thinking has have been by being raised here, which is something I had spent a long time, I think, trying to forget because I was very uncomfortable with my identity as a white South African. And I was very uncomfortable with the enormous complexity of living in such a difficult place. And one of your other books co-edited is called Anxious Joburg. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, the least subtle title we've ever come up with. But that that was a collaboration with a colleague, um, and we 
spent a lot of time talking about what what was it that made this city so intense for us and so difficult, but also so generative. And this is really where my oddball fascination with the notion of anxiety as a structuring social principle, I think, emerged from, was thinking about how does how does being anxious work in this city? Because when people talk about Joburg, they talk about hustle. Right. It's one of the things the city is famous for. It changes. Everyone's fighting. Everyone's moving. It's a war. And you've got to get ahead. It's deeply, deeply consumerist and deeply performative. But underlying that hustle is not just the desire to do better. It's the absolute terror of being left behind. It's this deep, pervasive anxiety that if you do not keep up, you will be trampled. It's like being on, it's like being on a fast-moving train. And we wanted to try and, at least to some small extent, pinpoint some of the ways in which that really pervasive anxiety manifests among very, very different people in very different communities in this very changeable and diverse city. Um, so, you know, the, the, the glory of that book, which I'm still very proud of, was the contributors. We found some incredible people who did really beautiful, really shocking work that, you know, we were we were so pleased to have. And I think we learned a lot about experiences in the city or parts of the city that we would never have been able to access otherwise. Getting back to what you were first talking about, which is to do mm -hmm. with race and, and whiteness. Uh, getting on for a decade ago, you wrote a book, which I've not read, <laughs> admit, although I've read much of your work, called, I think, The End of Whiteness. Yeah. So could you tell us how it ended and what came next or whether it didn't because <laughs> <laughs> it sounds as though perhaps it didn't happen no that's okay spoiler no it didn't end it's still there <laughs> um uh the title for that was also actually suggested by someone else that was um yeah a brilliant british historian who was helping me think through some things um yeah so that book was based on my doctoral research and my doctoral research was concerned with two, I eventually figured out that's what they were, two sort of matched moral panics that happened in what among white South Africans, in particular, particular types of white South African communities during the last years of apartheid. The first was an almost but not quite textbook Satanism scare, similar to what we saw in the UK and the US, and also bizarrely in places like Turkey. But it manifested somewhat differently in South Africa because it was not managed by the psychiatric fraternity at all. In South Africa, the Satanism scare assumed that Satan was actually stalking the country and that the only way to save people from Satanism was through exorcisms. So I found incredible documents like um, a, a guidebook for teachers in one of the provinces of South Africa on how to deal with Satanism in schools that said things like, don't perform an exorcism if you're not qualified. You must get someone qualified to come in and exorcise your students. So that was, you know, astonishing and quite bonkers and very, 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 um, I was very drawn to writing about it because, of course, I had been a teenager during the time that this was happening and I had been quite a gothy teenager. So I'd gotten somewhat caught up in the Satanism scare myself, where people at my school had assumed that I must be a Satanist because I liked Sisters of Mercy and War Doc Martens. So it was a very, very appealing thing to write about. And then through my through the periods of research that I spent looking at this book, I spent two three-month-long periods in the in the National Archives in Cape Town just reading old newspapers and magazines. It was an extremely strange time of my life. And I encountered a number of other similar phenomena where suddenly some sort of social issue popped up and seemed to take over everyone's consciousness and become something that we all needed to worry about, which, of course, fits very nicely into the conceptual frame of the moral panic. And the one that I ended up writing about was around so-called Afrikaans family murder. So there was a rush during this period of white men murdering their families and then committing suicide. So the second half of the book was all about how this was getting narrativized. These kinds of killings were getting narrativized as though there was something terrifically wrong with Afrikaners, which was really interesting to me because this is the tail end of apartheid where there are so many reasons emerging for people to go, okay, there's something wrong with Afrikaans culture. But it seemed as though many of us were not capable of that. Many white people were not capable yet of going apartheid 
was wrong, apartheid was bad. And so instead, these murders were seized upon as a way of allowing people to talk about the fact that something might be wrong with whiteness, but without ever saying the quiet part out loud. So, you know, what I had here was two kind of um, related but very different stories, both of which suggested that whiteness was coming to an end. The first one, the Satanism scare, suggested that Satan was stalking the white nation and was going to destroy society and we all needed to try and pray him away. The second one suggested that there was something fundamentally wrong with the glorified figure of the white Afrikaans patriarch who was now going off and killing his wives and children, white rather, because, you know, one man, one wife, at least in Afrikaans patriarchy. And these two panics together suggested that there was a moment towards the end of apartheid when white people were terrified that what was about to happen, understandably terrified, was not just a loss of political power, but an actual act of very serious blow to whiteness itself. And of course, the conclusion of the book was that whiteness never ended. And, you know, some of the work I've done recently has shown very clearly that the same discourses continue, the same narratives continue. But there was a point, there was a brief historical point where it looked like the fixity of whiteness, which, of course, we know is not fixed, but it look, what looked like the fixity of whiteness was finally about to be dramatically and possibly even violently shifted. So I can see a trend running through these concerns that you have that is clearly there in warrior state. Again, I'm taking great care to pronounce it in ways <laughs> that are clear. And it is certainly about an immense anxiety, an immense daily concern as well as a structural one. And I suppose that that is something that, in terms of the current conflict in mm. the Arab world, uh, but also for the diaspora of Jewish folks, is a theme often in Jewishness as a consequence of the terrible treatment of Jewish folks in so many parts of the world over so many centuries, including, of course, where I am now uh, in Spain. Mm. But it's also something that, as you say, preoccupies often the wealthy and the secure, as opposed to those who are poor and insecure, who don't have the time, yeah. the space, the imaginary of a domain in which they were safe and in which they were reasonably affluent. But there's another aspect to your work that I'd like to hear more about, and you've touched on Africana patriarchy, and that's your book about the trouble with modern marriage. <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> I can't believe you found that. Well, so, when you uh... as many troubled marriages as I have, you get interested in <laughs> Attempts to explain. Um, well, that was my that was my first attempt at writing a book. Um, it was actually written in between my master's and PhD uh, for a somewhat shonky British publisher. I was desperately um, desperately trying to get money to fund my doctorate because at that stage I had funding for my fees, but as a foreign student, my fees were extortionate, and I had no other money to live on. So I was. I decided in my infinite late 20s wisdom that the right way to make money to pay for my PhD would be to write a book, which, of course, I know now is utterly ridiculous. Um, and the publisher, the publisher came to me with a series of ideas. And one of them was, you know, to write a book about the trouble with marriage. And I went off to a cottage somewhere that was owned by a cousin somewhere near Stratford-on-Avon, which had internet but i didn't have a car or anything so i had a I had a rickety bicycle and a, and a shop in nearby in the village so i ate a lot of pasta and in three months churned out this book that involved um a lot of research primarily with people i knew who were heavily anonymized so my brother for example pops up in there as someone else and i think the argument that i was trying to make there is that you know the excuses that we make for the necessity of marriage as a construct don't stand up to any kind of scrutiny. Um, and I stand, I still stand by that to some extent. It wasn't the most well-considered or most well-thought-out book, but I think for me it was useful. Firstly, you know, as a kind of baby researcher, it did actually 
give me a sense of what it means to do scholarly work to some extent. I think the publisher was horrified by the number of footnotes. Secondly, I actually think one of the main reasons that it was useful for me is that I, I didn't have very long to write it. So it's perhaps a 60 or 70,000 word book that I did produce in less than six months from start to finish. And of course, you know, now, now I have more time. Warrior State took uh, from the beginning of, of, the, of the first idea, it took about six years till publication. But having done that and having produced something really fast, what I did get was a sense that there, the, only good, the only good writing is writing that actually is readable. Right. And this is something that stood me in good stead, particularly as a supervisor. I spend a lot of time telling this to my students. Everyone aims for perfection. But if it's not done, if what you've written is not readable by other people, there's no point. The perfection that you're striving for will only ever exist in your head. And I think as academics, as scholars, as writers, it's very, very easy for us to get caught up in this you know, endless desire to be perfect, this endless idea to forestall any critique or forestall any argument when actually our work is at its most valuable when other people can respond to it. Weakness is not necessarily as much of a weakness as we are told, I think. So, yeah, that book was a really, really interesting exercise for me. Um, I haven't read it back for many years because I think <laughs> it would be very embarrassing, but I'm glad to know it still exists somewhere. My, my next question is about a, another Manchester University Press book in addition mm -hmm. to the Warrior one. And this, again, articulates to gender, as does a lot of your work, Intimacy mm -hmm. and Injury, a co-edited book. And this is a, a look transnationally um, in the global south between India and South Africa to think about the... I don't know whether one could say the impact of the Me Too movement, but I think the expression you use, yeah, I'm just looking at it now, in the wake of Me Too. Mm. Could you tell us a little bit about what you and your co-editors are up to in this volume? So this was an interesting one for me because it's not really my area. Um, as you say, most of my work is inflected to some extent by gender. I do tend to write about issues around gender. I've done a lot of work on representations of GBV, that sort of thing, but I'm not fundamentally a quote-unquote feminist scholar in the sense that everyone I quote is another feminist scholar. Um, so this was, I was being pushed to work in a slightly different space by my co-editors, um, who are friends and colleagues as well, who are both um, really extremely, extremely good scholars, both Indian, one Indian working in South Africa. And the book came out of a collaborative workshop that took place at my university, which was interested in asking, you know, how did Me Too manifest in India and South Africa if it did? And the papers that were presented there made it abundantly clear that there was a huge amount of, um, I guess you could call it latent resentment towards the the loudness, the, the sheer volume of the Me Too movement which was being presented as something that had sort of arrived in the developing world, arrived in India, arrived in South Africa to save women in these countries. And what happened during the process of the workshop and of the discussions that came afterwards and the things that my co-editors and I wanted to put forward was this notion that, you know, while of course it's incredibly beneficial to have global attention on a feminist movement like Me Too, the problem is that this kind of global north white feminism is doing the same thing that global north white feminism has always done. And it is erasing local and indigenous feminist struggles in places that are not the global north, pretending that they're not there. Both India and South Africa have incredibly long and vibrant histories of this type of struggle. And a movement like Me Too, as well as invisibilizing those things to some extent also centers certain types of women certain types of you know female embodied people you know we all, i think we're all very aware of what's been going on in mainstream white feminism in in places like the us and the uk which is now creeping into countries like mexico you know someone like alison phipps who's also an mup author is amazing on this but a movement like me too silences 
the voices of women who are not considered to appropriately be women by the types of white feminists who are behind that. And I think, you know, while there's not that much in our in, in intimacy and injury that explicitly deals with transgender experience or the experience of people who don't fit into the specific gender binary, that was also a part of what drove us. You know, what is what are black women, what are Dalit women? What are trans women? What are women who are not mainstreamed in the Me Too discourse? What are they doing about gender-based violence? And what are they doing about gender-based violence in two countries that have huge and terrible and well-deserved reputations for gender-based violence? And I think the conclusion that was drawn is that, you know, something, a movement like Me Too had no, had no real currency in South Africa. And it had some in India, but it was taken up and manifested into something very different, like the list of sexual harassers in academia, which played out in a very different way to more um, obvious US manifestations of Me Too. So really, I think what the book wanted to do, and we, we possibly made a bit of a tactical error in calling it in the wake of Me Too, because that suggested once again that Me Too was this incredibly important thing in our two sites of investigation, when really what the chapters show, I think, was that it was not. But, you know, that's good for SEO <laughs> and for getting people to read the book. But I think, you know, what our contributors did really well was show how histories and contemporary situations of feminist organizing in India and South Africa predate and are much larger and much more creative than the constrictions imposed by what the Me Too movement has become. Thank you, Prof. That explains the book very well, and also some of these dilemmas between Global North and Global South movements. I have two more questions for you, and if I may, and then after that, I'd like to throw it to you so that you can subtract from or add to what we've already discussed. Does that sound okay? Mm -hmm. So my first question, and you've explained some of this in terms of those three months in the archives, is how do you find shit out? <laughs> That's such a good question. I mean, it's become, you know, it's becoming more and more difficult. So, yeah, for, for my Satanism book, I found shit out by spending months and months and months poring over old newspapers. Um, and interestingly, uh, you know, when I was trying to get that book published, I received, I'm not going to name the publisher, but I received the most crushing deeply deeply upsetting rejection from a, a reviewer who had written a book for one for the publisher that i'd approached who said this is the biggest piece of nonsense i've ever read in my life how you cannot even consider publishing this if you do you will ruin your reputation as an academic publisher one simply cannot do history in this way and of course i'm not a historian i wasn't trained as a historian but it was an interesting experience in the act of collecting data because it made it clear to me how very, very, very gatekeepy um, scholarly disciplines can be, which of course is why I am so comfortable calling myself a cultural studies scholar, because within this field, we do get the freedom to do all sorts of different things, even if one should not do history in this way. Since then, I've used a load of different methodologies, but mostly what I do is I collect media material. Uh, you know, I'll collect newspaper articles or I'll collect tweets, which, of course, has now become incredibly difficult. Twitter used to be a glorious site of investigation. And since the arrival of Elon Musk, it has now become just a disastrous hellhole. It was always a hellhole, but it was a useful hellhole. Um, so that's been really sad. I've done some of the work that I've done has been on Facebook groups. What I don't do is the big data. Um, and I have colleagues who are very, very skilled in this area. And I can see why it's so valuable, because, of course, one of the huge limitations of the kind of studies that I do is that I'm working with very small groups of people, very small sample sizes. So. I've got an article coming out, uh, I think, within the next couple of weeks about um, narratives of white South African victimhood during the COVID-19 lockdowns in South Africa, in which, you know, white people were his acting up as though they, they slash we were the only people who were really suffering from lockdown policing. And this is in the face of, you know, an overzealous military that was actually killing people in the townships 
physically assaulting people in the townships for daring to break COVID regulations. And at the same time, you have all these suburban white people there. I can't believe I can't go surfing. It's outrageous. How is this allowed to happen? And for that, you know, which I think is a coherent project. And I think, you know, the arguments that I make there would be, uh, you know, applicable in other contexts. But all I did was look at one video and two online petitions. So I found this material that I thought was very interesting. And then I undertook a very close analysis of it. And I do think that as a technique, it stands and is valid. But I also acknowledge that I'm talking about a really, really small amount of data. And you can't necessarily extrapolate about absolutely everything from a small set of data. What you can say is that these are discursive positions that have been familiar to white South Africans throughout the entire history of white settlement in this country. And look, here they are yet again. So, you know, those are the kind, yeah, those are the kind of methods that I tend to use. I also occasionally will use ethnography. I will go and talk to people, but I find that much more intimidating than looking at a text. Um, not only because of the difficulties of finding people who want to respond to you, but also because of the the kind of work that I do, which is often by its very nature, you know, hypercritical of the discursive positions taken by privileged people, whether white people or middle class people. And ethically, that's much more of a complicated thing to do when you're talking to real people. So I do tend to avoid that if I can. So my last question, Prof, is to ask what next for you? I mean, pregnancy is <laughs> big. <laughs> I realize pregnancy is big. So I, yeah, this is uh, this is a complicated one as well because it's not working as well as I would like it to. But I have my eyes on a very big, longer-term project which I've been trying to get together for quite some time now, in which I take the sort of interests I was dealing with in Warrior State and in Anxious Joburg and expand them outwards to other geographical locations and start trying to think about what does anxiety, particularly the anxiety of the privileged, look and feel like in other places in the global south. So I've just recently spent a few months at UNAM in Mexico City at the Institute of Geography, um, which I would ordinarily try and say in Spanish, but I won't to you because my accent is horrific. Um, I've been, yeah, I've, I've spent a few months at UNAM and I'm trying to work my way up to a comparative study of Johannesburg and Mexico City, which I think are cities that are radically, radically different, but also have commonalities that are really interesting, which I don't think very many people have spoken about. And, you know, part of that is reframing the lens that often does comparative study of places like Mexico City and Joburg with cities in the U.S., I think it's actually very, very valuable for us to do this kind of South-South work. I'm also fascinated by the way in which the middle and upper classes in Mexico City are terrified, so afraid of safety, are so afraid of kidnapping and have so many high walls. You know, we were staying while we were there in Coyoacan, in the south of the city near the university. Very, very, very lovely, wealthy, fancy neighborhood that I probably couldn't afford the equivalent of in Joburg, where... Much to my surprise, you know, women walk around on their own at 10 p.m. at night on their phones, which would never happen in South Africa. But yet every single large house has an ADT sign and bars on every window and electric fences. And you're looking around as someone from Johannesburg, which is such a violently securitized place, going, what are, what are people afraid of here? It doesn't seem frightening. And to me, there was something really significant about the the way in which my anxieties, my fears sort of vanished in a different context. But of course, those fears are very present for people who live in that context, because they have different ways of reading threat. So, you know, longer term, this is something that I'm hoping I will get to work on and write about. Um, I'm not sure how possible that will be with two small children. Um, but we're, yeah, we're thinking, we're thinking about it. And um, I also have something in development that I'm doing with a colleague in Cape Town about wildlife, which is also really, really fun about the way in which um, wildlife encroaches on white middle class comfort in South Africa and how complicated that is for white narratives. Because, of course, white South Africans have always framed ourselves as being the only people who are appropriate stewards of the natural world, which is why we belong in Africa and we belong 
as the leaders and rulers of Africa. But then what happens when that runs headlong into the fact that a troop of baboons is ruining the kitchen in your very expensive house in the Western Cape? And you think of these baboons as being a pest. How does your privileged access to wildlife intersect with the fact that wildlife is actually really getting in the way of your gated community? So that's a fun, smaller project that I'm hoping to embark on at the end of this year. Wonderful. So let me throw it to you, if, if I may, Prof. Nikki, and ask you if there's something you would like to add to what we've already chatted about. Can I do some marketing? Um, so both Warrior State and Intimacy and Injury are part of a series that I'm co-editing at Manchester UP, along with my colleague Sri Leroy, who edited Intimacy and Injury with me. Um, the series is called Governing Intimacies in the Global South. And we're always looking for interesting books. And we are, unlike a lot of series, we are amenable to considering publication of first-time scholars and people who don't have you know, the hugest record behind them. So if some of what I've been talking about has, has resonated with any of your listeners, we'd be really happy to hear from them. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess that's the main thing. The other thing I think that I should probably end with is, I suppose, um, you know, I would like to end on a note of, of hope that this South African case in the International Court of Justice will have some kind of effect on the bloodshed, the, the, the brutal bloodshed that's going on in Palestine right now. Just uh, about half an hour before I spoke to you, I saw some visuals of the University of Palestine being systematically and intentionally destroyed. Um, but, you know, I'm not, I'm not overly optimistic that that will happen. But I do think that regardless of our personal positions or our personal politics or how we feel about anti-Semitism or not, how we feel about Islamophobia or not, you know, I assume that the majority of people who listen to this podcast will be related to academia in some way. And I think we need to be a lot more outraged about the way in which the entire Palestinian higher education sector has been decimated. And that's something that we have the capacity, ability and right to speak to and about. So, yeah, that's some that's something that I'm going to try and be a bit louder about, I think. Terrific. Thank you. It's been a great privilege to chat to you. I feel as though I've learned a lot. I always learn from reading what you write, but I learned more from talking to you. And uh, I'm sure many of our listeners will, too. Thank you.